We opened our time as a church this week discussing two passages, one from Romans 13 and one from Revelation 13, both of which speak about the nature of the Roman Empire and how Christians should relate to it. So we can't have a discussion, obviously, via podcast, but I am going to read those two passages to begin our time here today. So this is Romans 13, 1 to 7. Every person must be subject to the ruling authorities. There is no authority you see except from God, and those that exist have been put in place by God. As a result, anyone who rebels against authority is resisting what God has set up, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terrors for people who do good, but only for people who do evil. If you want to have no fear of the ruling power, do what is good, and it will praise you. It is God's servant, you see, for you and your good. But if you do evil, be afraid. The sword it carries is no empty gesture. It is God's servant, in fact, to bring his anger on evildoers. That is why it is necessary to submit, not only to avoid punishment, but because of conscience. That, too, is why you pay taxes. The officials in question are God's ministers, attending to this very thing. So pay each of them what is owed. Tribute to those who collect it. Revenue to those who collect it. Respect those who should be respected. Honor people one ought to honor. And then... Keeping in mind that in the symbolic world of Revelation, the beast is Rome, the dragon is Satan, and the lamb is Jesus. This is Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 to 8. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast, again, this is Rome, that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave it his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, but its fatal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth speaking arrogant and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to speak blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to wage war on the saints and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slaughtered. So those are our two contrasting passages, and now we'll move on to the sermon. We're dealing with an interesting tension in the Bible this week. Respect authority on one side, resist empire on the other. And like all good tensions in the Bible, what makes it so interesting is that there's a theme running through the whole of scripture, seemingly on both sides of this important issue. On the one side is God being a God of order, of God appointing and working through even pagan kings and governments, like when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is described as God's servant in Jeremiah, much like how Paul describes Rome. On this side also, we have God's people being called to be peacemakers and good citizens, to settle down in Babylon, to respect the authority of Rome, not to join in any revolts against Rome, and to go an extra mile when a Roman soldier asks you to carry his things one mile. On the other side is God hating injustice and oppression, overthrowing the power of Pharaoh in order to release the slaves. God's people living defiantly faithful lives to Yahweh within Babylon. Elijah and Jeremiah opposing the prophets employed by the king and denouncing the kings those prophets represented. Revelation symbolically unmasking Rome and its governments as being animated by the devil itself. 
and predicting the coming overthrow of it all. And some scholars point out that by going the extra mile with the soldier, you may have exposed him to legal liability for going further than was strictly allowed, that it was, in other words, an act of resistance, not passivity. How do we make sense of and live in those sorts of tensions? When Paul in Romans says that Rome is a minister of God and John in Revelation says Rome is a minister of Satan. Many of you will remember some years back when Rob Bell published the book Love Wins. It caused quite a commotion, (laughs) even though he didn't really say anything in that book that N.T. Wright or C.S. Lewis hadn't said or at least hinted at long before. But in it, Bell makes the case for universalism, that the love of God is so powerful that it will, well, win in the end, such that all people will ultimately be saved. My problem with Love Wins was not that anything in it was heretical. In fact, my problem with it wasn't really anything that was in the book at all. My problem was with what it had left out. Bell focused almost entirely on one theme that certainly does run through the whole of scripture of the overwhelming love of a God who desires for all people to be saved and all things to be made new. He basically ignored the competing theme that also runs throughout the Bible of the overwhelming love of a God who allows humans real agency and choices and who will not allow injustice and oppression to continue defacing creation and humanity forever. The reality of evil, in other words, and the judgment of a God who will not allow evil to win and so must put an end to that which is aligned with evil instead of aligned with God. Now, this isn't a sermon about that tension, so I'm not going to go any further down that particular road. My point for now is that Rob Bell shows us one way of dealing with the tensions in the Bible, one that I think leaves something to be desired. The strategy of, in effect, just cutting out the parts that have the theme we don't like, pretending they aren't there, choosing the one that we like, and then doing the equivalent of plugging our ears and singing loudly to block out the noise. This, by the way, is also when you really peel back the logic of it, saying something like, well, since I'm smarter than the people who wrote the Bible, and I know what's actually true, I know that the ones who wrote these things were just wrong, and so I don't have to listen to them because I know better than they do. A related strategy is to grab onto whatever flimsy rationale we can find to try and explain why, when the Bible clearly says this, it actually means the opposite. This is the strategy that John Piper and the ESV translation committees of the world use who want us to believe that when Paul, later in Romans, writes that the woman Junia is well known among the apostles with the grammar of the sentence clearly meaning she is an apostle and a noteworthy one at that, that what Paul actually meant was that she was well known to the apostles as if James and Peter had heard good things about her banana bread. I go on a rant about that in the backdrop episode that is coming up that deals with chapter 16. So no more for now. We all do both of these things sometimes, if we're honest, of course, when faced with the tensions. Or we choose the even easier option of giving up completely and not thinking about it at all because it's hard (laughs) and uncomfortable. But I do think that Paul, especially on the heels of chapter 12, which has him talking about the renewing of our minds and the thinking through the implications of this good news about Jesus, that Paul might hope that we would also sometimes think through how to live in the tension between two themes. To think through not how to conflate the two or pretend they're really just saying the same thing as each other or that one exists and the other doesn't, but rather to think through how both might be true in their own way. So that's what we're going to try and do together today. Not to blindly accept every word we read in the Bible and not to reject or ignore the messages we don't like, 
but instead to use the minds that God has given us to think through what might be going on here and how to make sense of this passage in light of others in the New Testament that we might prefer. Our first step is to see if there is any cultural background that might clarify the situation. Does this passage mean what it seems to right on the surface, or is there more going on that might help us understand what the author was actually saying? N.T. Wright makes two points about Romans 13 that I think help frame our thinking in this way. First, he points out what was going on in the culture in which Paul was writing, especially and particularly its religious culture. What is sometimes called the imperial cult, the worshiping of the emperor as divine, was on the rise. We talk a lot about this in our Revelation backdrop series. Revelation was written a generation or so after this, when the cult of the emperor had expanded even further. But the cult had not really existed until late in the life of Caesar Augustus. But it was now, as Paul is writing, starting to take hold, especially in the eastern parts of the empire. Now, in this light, Paul's words about the ruling authorities being set up by God and subject to God, they may have had a significantly different flavor to them in Paul's day than they do in our own. We live, after all, in a post-Hamilton world that is suspicious of any ruling authority in the first place, because sometimes it seems they are less likely to preserve justice and order than they are to kill your friends and family, to remind you of their love, da da No, I'm not going to do that part. Uh, it's possible, as Wright argues, that we should hear Paul as undermining totalitarianism, not reinforcing it. That if we take the cultural starting point, People would have heard Paul's words as challenging the power of Rome, even though from our cultural starting point, it seems like he's enthroning the power of Rome. A second related point is that setting the ruling authorities under the authority of God means that the people under that authority have a court of appeals, so to speak. The government has the responsibility to God and to their subjects to rule well. Wright points out that in Acts, we see Paul interacting with imperial magistrates, whom he both submits to and reminds of their duties. In this way, Paul is resisting the abuses of authority while still submitting to its existence. Immediately before these verses in Romans, Paul tells them to not take vengeance against enemies, but instead to call out to God for justice. And in light of that, this passage would be Paul telling the people to call out to God in opposition of unjust rulers as opposed to taking matters into their own rebellious hands. In that case, Paul is meaning don't resist violently, especially in a context where the ruling power has the ability to literally kill your friends and family if you do openly rebel. In fact, just a decade or so after Paul wrote these words, that's exactly what Rome did to Jerusalem after a rebellion by the Jews there in around 70 AD. I think these points are important, although I am still a bit at a loss for why Paul says that rulers hold no terror for those who do good, but only for those who do evil when he has spent this whole letter telling the Romans about a man, Jesus, who did no evil and was crucified by the Roman authorities. It's also possible that Paul is writing about an idealized government in these verses, as opposed to the reality of the Roman government on the ground. Again, the reality, according to Revelation, is that the ruling authorities are the puppets of Satan. Which, again, is hard to square with what Paul's saying. Like, Paul says they're servants of God. Revelation says they're servants of Satan. Seems kind of tricky to square that circle. Although, like I said earlier, Revelation was written a generation or so after Paul is writing Romans, which could have changed the situation in some significant way. One final consideration is that Paul must have had a reason to write these words. 
there must have been some situation that maybe the Romans were aware of, but that 2,000 years later were not, that has caused him to feel that the Roman Christians needed to hear this message right now. Whether because of some brewing hostility towards the church on the part of the Roman authorities that he's trying to head off, or because of some brewing revolutionary sentiment among the church itself, it's possible that Paul is concerned to head off trouble, and that he does so in a way that maybe isn't as nuanced as we might like today. In any event, once we have, as best we can, looked at the cultural factors that might add texture to the words we're trying to make sense of, our next step is to look at what else the Bible has to say about the issue, both on the same theme and on any competing themes. Now, we've already spent some time looking at that, especially at what Revelation had to say about the matter, and I've alluded to some of the other passages and ideas that add complexity, including the Exodus story. But once we have done our best to take into consideration the various things that might inform our thinking— it's time to think. <laughs> Where does all this leave us? Well, we know that God is a God of order, and governments are in part designed to create and establish order. God is a God of justice, and governments can be sources of both justice and injustice. God is a God of peace, and the usual way of resisting unjust government, especially in the ancient world, was violent revolution. God is a God of the marginalized, who cares deeply about the oppressed and will overthrow the oppressors, sometimes in ways we wouldn't expect. We're left with the reality that Paul can't possibly mean to just go along with whatever the government says. There are too many times in the Bible when resistance to unjust authorities is the proper path. But it also can't be that Paul's just wrong, that Rome is actually not a minister of God, because there are too many times in the Bible when unlikely even oppressive rulers are described in that way as well. In fact, the very passage of Revelation that we looked at that portrayed the beast that is Rome as animated by Satan talks about the beast having been given authority, with the implication being that it is given authority by God. The tension is real, and both themes must be true. When this sort of tension exists between themes in the Bible, it is because God wants us to recognize the complexities of of the world, and to work at holding on to both sides of the tension rather than getting rid of the one that we're less comfortable with. The tension is there because one side of this tension tells us that there are times to respect and submit to authority, even less than perfect authority. But the other side of the tension reminds us that it matters how we submit in ways that do not participate in and magnify its injustice and oppression. History is littered with examples like the German church in the early 20th century, who not just submitted to, but wholeheartedly embraced a government that was, as clearly as any in history, animated by evil in the mold of the beast in Revelation. And the tension exists to show us that as the people of God, there are times to resist injustice in the name of Jesus. But the other side of the tension reminds us that even then, it matters the manner in which we resist. Do we resist in ways that are aligned with the character of God instead of the character of empire. We must recognize the ways that sin has corrupted all things, including governing structures and institutions, and in that light, they are servants of Satan, while also recognizing that if God wanted to blow it all up, it would probably be billowing smoke already. And so the continuing existence of this particular institution indicates that God is still doing something behind the scenes and may have one of those hidden, mysterious, long-term plans in the works that Paul spoke of in chapters 9 through 11. And in that light, they are servants of God, 
Governments might simultaneously be doing evil and thus unwittingly doing the will of Satan and be the tool God is working through for good, unwittingly doing the will of God, both at the same time. It's maybe an overused example, but that doesn't change the fact that the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century is one of the best examples that come to mind for me for this sort of resistance. Submitting to the authority of an unjust, oppressive system by accepting the consequences of their resistance, but doing so in a way that highlighted the oppression for all to see and calling the authorities to account for their injustice and oppression. Resisting peacefully in a way that aligns with who Jesus is, trusting that the God who set the Hebrews free from Pharaoh would also let my people go from Jim Crow. Not using the tools of empire, the violence and the hate, and just becoming a new empire to replace the old, but using the tools of Jesus to work towards and for an entirely different type of kingdom. May we allow the tensions of scripture to inform our own submission and resistance as well.